you're on the air. Don't say anything crazy. A very good day to everybody listening in to episode number 12 of Bro Bears Talk. And today we are going to be talking about the Electoral College, the crazy state of political affairs in the United States and the election looming in less than a week away. Brother Bear, are you excited? Brother Bear, I cannot wait. I think it's a fantastic insight. You're our man in North America over there and uh, a bit closer to the action, of course. Damien there in Denver, he's been seeing the Biden banners, the Trump banners. It's all about to kick off. Very exciting, very relevant. Can't wait to get stuck in. Brilliant. I love the enthusiasm. And um, over here, yes, I can be your Canadian correspondent. There's a lot of support for both Trump and Biden here in Alberta. Um, And we're also going to be talking a heck of a lot today about the uh, cyclical nature of politics and how there always seems to be a level of duality in the way the US elections are run. The time of the Ouroboros has arrived. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. It has. Perhaps, perhaps the Ouroboros has arrived. Um, I don't know. I think, I think that, um, I, th- I think we're now at, you know, we're seven days from um, the most powerful country on earth deciding its uh, its next leader um who is it going to put in the white house and i think everyone's again well not again really because people were so convinced that trump wouldn't win last time but i think i think at this this juncture in time no one really knows or can accurately predict what's going to happen um do you have any uh any uh, knowledge or foresight that you can impart to to myself and the listeners brother bear on who you think might snatch the victory this time Mm, brotherly bear well i think if the last elections taught us anything is that the polls can often be quite um misleading right until sort of election night even um because i don't remember if i followed it live leo but there was a heavy leaning towards hillary winning the election in 2016 is that right and that sort of persisted yep. throughout the night and then it gradually as the states came in and the results came in that big pendulum began to swing in trump's favor but it was only in sorry, the very late stages of that evening. Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember um, actually following the polls and all the betting agencies um, and they were giving Hillary a huge lead. You know, a lot of them were predicting, you know, 80% win. It was a landslide, um, basically, they were predicting, right? It was one of the biggest landslides. It would have been one of the biggest landslides in US history. Um, and I think... I think everyone was just so shocked at the outcome um, when it was completely different. And as you said, even on the night, um, people were uh, predicting and, and the exit polls were predicting a, a firm Hillary win. Um, but what happened in the end around 3 a.m. UK time, it was, you know, I think when Trump won Florida, it was it was kind of a, a watershed moment. And it was it was just evident that it wasn't going to be that way. Yeah. And I think it may well be the case this time around. I'm not sure which way it's going to go. I'm not sure there's a particularly strong um, evidence to sort of lean me one way or the other. What I will say is I spoke to Damien, who's our man in America, and Mm. um, he did say he's seeing a lot of Biden signs out there in the uh, countryside. So out in the rural areas, where you'd normally Mm. be more inclined to see more Republican support. He's actually seeing a lot of biden signs and that's just sort of 
um, I suppose, circumstantial maybe evidence and a relatively small sample and no way represents the United States, maybe just a very small portion of Denver. But nonetheless, it was an interesting dynamic. He's maybe witnessing the... Maybe mm. maybe this is just the people and how democracy works. It is a quite a frustrating thing that, you know, have you ever actually come out of or I suppose as a UK voter come out of a Labour or a Conservative or a Lib Dem government in history where people haven't been dissatisfied with the last four years of work they've been doing <laughs> and what's been implemented? Has there ever been a case of where people have been like, wow, that was great. Let's have another four years of that. Maybe Obama. But apart from that, nothing else in mm. living memory comes to mind. And it's such a weird thing, and then you swing from yeah. left to right, left right to left, and and it's um, it's rarely the case that the the peoples of a country are completely satisfied and being like, yep, let's do another top up of that, do another four year plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's renew our contract again. It, it's it's interesting because uh, elections are all about swing voters, and that's what politicians do on the campaign trail. They're not interested in reaching their own base. They're interested in reaching the people that are undecided. Um, those are the real people that decide elections. It's swing not people state. who are swing states or just just swing people. You know, you know, Labour, if you're taking it back to the UK, isn't interested in reaching um, the heartland Labour supporters. And same goes for Tories. They they reach out to those areas that are on the fence because um, that's what decides elections. Um, but you know, I think I think. It comes back to, you know, you called it an Ouroboros, and I think politics is a very cyclical um, chain of events um, based on, you know, how long you can put up with a certain administration. Um, but coming back to what you said about what Damien's observations were in Colorado, um, looking at the focus groups, which were actually a lot more telling now in terms of a temperature check on where politics is the national polls obviously show that mr biden has a significant advantage but in the focus groups white seniors in particular um have showing signs of disapproval um towards trump and this is a group that helped propel him to victory back in 2016 yeah okay that's really interesting so would that Mm. be atypical of what um you'd expect in america very atypical um and the Republicans have definitely done well um, in the U.S., across the U.S., because white, older people always come out to vote. Their turnout rates are very high. Um, I think the their president's handling of the pandemic has set them to, you know, maybe pulling that Democrat lever instead. And the, the reason why is obviously because they're the more vulnerable, the most vulnerable group in society. No, that, that anyone senior. Yeah, that does make some sense. I suppose there's always a level of indecision and sort of um, being on the fence right up until election night, as we saw in the 2016 election. But uh, I think what I've noticed is that the candidates themselves are far from ideal. Um, mm. Obviously, there's no such thing as sort of the ideal candidate that sort of only exists in the imagination of potential voters, and everyone has a slightly different picture of what that looks like. But um, I don't think this particular election offers particularly, um, I suppose, options that fill you with confidence in terms of both competence and just longevity and energy required for the job at hand, right? They're in their late 70s, both of them, if I'm not wrong. Hmm. 
Um, mm. And it's it's strange that we don't have better candidates, younger candidates, something more akin to Obama, that would have the necessary energy. Also, because I mean, energy is key to the job at hand, right? To be there on the international stage and projecting a strong America globally. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think you would you would assume, based off of logic and common sense, that being the leader of the the world superpower, the largest superpower in the world, would require, uh, you know, longevity and, and energy and enthusiasm. Um, I think just in general, both candidates aren't particularly desirable. I mean, we have obviously Trump with all his faults, um, and for better or for worse, and then Biden, who is, you know, a traditionally establishment politician i mean he comes from a legal background with um time as a vice president and time as a delaware senator since the late 70s um you know he's led a lot of interesting initiatives in narcotics reform in the united states um and has been involved in a bunch of different uh, really i wouldn't say disputes but certain certain groups and initiatives um that have led to to racial reform and things like that so racial policy reform so you know he's he's more of a sort of well-hardened politician um the question is in america is that anti-career politician um anti-establishment feeling is it rampant enough in november 2020 to get mr trump elected again mm. right because i think it would be the anti-establishment vote they would need to go for Maybe that's why Bernie wasn't the preferred candidate from the Democrats' side because he was also the anti-establishment, and there might be a, sort of a clash there between him and Trump. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Bernie is sort of out of the Democrat candidates that were initially put forward. There was Andrew Yang, who I thought was a strong candidate, along with Bernie. Sort of that mm -hmm. I was sort of hoping those two to be the last two to go forward. But um, I suppose it's often the case that the pragmatic approach is the one taken and it's not always mm. the best candidate that gets put forward no that's that's right i mean um both both of those um both of both of those candidates yang and sanders were very anti-establishment and rather unorthodox in their own way um and i think you know a lot a lot of the time these groups particularly the um the dnc they want the the party or the, the the candidate that will please the most individuals, sort of having a utilitarian approach to the election. Um, and I think in many ways uh, that can work in their favour or it can swing the other way. Again, it all depends on how, how strong and widespread anti-establishment rhetoric is. Mm. And did you get the chance to watch any of the two debates that were had between Biden and Trump? I did, yeah. So I watched a little bit of the first, um, as much as I could stand, uh, which <laughs> wasn't was very atrocious. much, to be honest. It was just absolutely atrocious. I mean, did what? Did you get a chance to see the first edition? I've not seen either full length. I've seen clips from both. Uh, but yes, the sense I got from the first was it was incredibly disorganised. I felt very sorry for the um, adjudicator man. <laughs> he seemed to be struggling to uh, keep either side... <laughs> sort of quiet to listen to the other person's answer so yeah i think that was a bit of a mess the second one uh went a little way to salvage um 
the remnants of the first debate, I thought that yes, there was less interruption and it was interesting to listen to. Although, for some reason, and I wasn't expecting this, I felt Trump came across a little more eloquent and actually articulated his ideas <laughs> a little better, which is quite because it would give you an idea of how badly I thought Biden came across for that. From that, he was sort of saying, "Come on, man, come on, oh, come mm. on, you're the worst president the United States has never seen. Come on." Like, yeah. It, I think common is probably just a filler term when he's uh, unable to find the right <laughs> words. And this probably speaks to some of the cognitive decline we're inevitably seeing with um, Biden, which is not, you know, atypical of someone of his age. No. And it's not something, well, it's something the Democrats have obviously pushed under the carpet. But I think it's quite apparent from the number of interviews, you know, they call them Joeisms and his gaffes, but there's too mm. many of them. For it to just be swept under the carpet and ignored as just like ah, oh, it's just old age. But then again, this speaks back to well, if, if it is old age, and even if it is, you know, just forgetfulness. Um, yes. Then, then surely there are better candidates out there out of all of the possible Democratic candidates they had initially. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think um, you're you're certainly right in the in the second debate. Trump um, actually, for once, I think for the most part, came across as a bit more eloquent, and it was more measured than than usual. Um, there were his usual uh, outlandish and crazy comments. I think at one point in the, which actually made me laugh, it was so ridiculous. Um, at one point in the second debate, I think he said that uh, he'd done more for African Americans, or almost, or on par with um abraham lincoln <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did hear that i did see that bit and um but but yeah you're right and on terms of Bi in terms of biden there was a lot of come on man and umming and ahhing and a lot of it seemed to be a lot of confusion um and i don't think that bodes well you know when you're you're looking at your big judgment calls and and running an economy as gargantuan as the u.s um i think that's that's incredibly worrying so i th yeah you're right both both candidates here are they're not ideal in any by any stretch of imagination <laughs> yeah i mean i suppose trump for one has all the sophistication of a hog and you know absolutely doesn't hold himself or conduct himself as a president should in all no. um, facets and divisions of that role and then Biden, on the other hand, like we've spoken about, the cognitive decline, I think, is apparent to all, other mm. than, I suppose, someone who's just trying to plain deny it at this point. <laughs> um, and what scares me, man, is that, look, this is 2020. He's supposed to be a president for the next four years. So I can't... The trajectory of that sort of uh, condition, I'd call it, a, I'd call it a condition, I'd suppose it's early onset dementia, if not medium to late... Um, is is only develops with time and, and is isn't something that generally gets better. No, no. I mean, the trajectory is not looking good for him, um, and that yeah, that leads me to question. I'm sure voters are aware of that, um, and a lot of voters will always also come from the position of you know pre-pandemic, um, the world didn't implode when. Trump was elected. I mean, however grotesque and unpresidential as he is, um, you know, the world didn't blow up. Um, there wasn't a war with North Korea. Um, 
and for the most part of the, the beginning of his his um, leadership at least the economy was uh, you know booming it was a sort of a 17 year high not that that's fully attributed to him but I mm. think that it counts for something that it didn't completely tank yeah and I think this probably speaks to the limited power of a president of the United States although it's incredibly mm. powerful they are not obviously dictator powerful they don't have those sorts of powers and you know Putin of course would say something along the lines of I think he said something like US presidents generally aren't very powerful people and I mm. suppose compared to him then yes that, that stands true but um, mm. I think it would be arrogant or sort of naive to think that the change of one president to another would make an impact and percolate all levels and divisions of society uh, yep. in every aspect and would potentially you know rock the very foundation of America I think they aren't powerful enough to do that because there are mechanisms in place and we it's a democracy fundamentally and there's a senate where things and bills and ideas need to be passed before being implemented mm. which is correct right because it just make ensures that the pendulum doesn't swing too extremely one way or the other and is moderated mm. by a senate Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought this up, Brotherly Bear. This is actually the next <laughs> the next area I wanted to focus on, um, particularly the role of the Supreme Court. Um, I mean, you're, you're bang on right. You know, the, the checks and balances that are placed on the president actually make them, you know, as democracies go, fairly weak in terms of um, the stretch of their influence on the country domestically. Um, but you know, you've got the role of federalism, so you've got all the states' rights and the states' legal systems that in many ways override um, the federal government. Federal um, Federal! Federal! <laughs> but you've, you've also got the role of the Supreme Court, and I think this is really where Trump's legacy is. Um, because in the past um, three... Well, in the past, sorry, four years, Trump has appointed... Uh, three uh, very conservative Supreme Court justices. And now we're seeing, we're looking at um, a six to three conservative majority on the most supreme and top US judicial body. Um, you know, it was huge news uh, when he appointed Amy Coney Barrett, um, which I think she was administered uh, the oath of office, uh, I think it was one day ago or two days ago now. So right in there before the election, um, Amy Coney Barrett is a huge uh, social conservative uh, on issues like abortion, uh, gay marriage, gun laws, even the Affordable Care Act. Um, so really with Amy Coney Barrett, um, we're going to be seeing a lasting legacy. It doesn't matter if Biden wins by a landslide. Um, she's probably going to work towards repealing Obamacare um, or influencing that. And... You've also got her influence on repealing Roe versus Wade, which is the the federal abortion law back, I believe, in 1973. Mm -hmm. um, so these these are long term, long lasting impacts of the Trump presidency that could could be with us for like 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and obviously, Trump also picked the justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, um, which completely tilted the uh, the balance towards conservatism in the Supreme Court. So again, it goes so much further than 
the office of the president and so much further than Donald Trump himself in terms of the legacy. So what are the checks and balances in place to, or the hurdles rather, he has to overcome to implement these judges and justices? Very little. Basically, the way the... And this is why... So why hasn't this um, been a strategy of um, of governments past? Or has it been and they've just not done it as successfully? So there's two reasons for that. Um, the first, and it's a really good question, the first, the first one is that chief justices are there to stay. Um, the... Sorry, not chief justices. Justices in the Supreme Court. So there's nine justices. Um... And basically, they're there until they either resign, which they very rarely do, or they die. Um, so it's not a democratic position at all, and they're directly appointed by the president. Um, so really, we had a, a string of deaths. I mean, rec recently you had Scalia that passed away, but you also had um, recently Justice Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg, who was... A, a huge liberal icon and liberal influence in the Supreme Court. Her passing away left the door open for um, Trump to appoint Coney Barrett. So again, it, it's not democratic. The other the other reason why this mechanism hasn't been used so politically is because the Supreme Court. I guess the only the only um, parallel would be the British monarchy is seen as this sort of supremely uh, neutral body that is above all politics or at least it was until the bush administration it was only until around that period um onwards that justices would be appointed um as a sort of device for presidents to influence and systematically enact their own beliefs um before then, in some ways, you could say American the American judicial system was less dirty. Um, you'd have conservative justices voting for liberal ideas, liberal justices voting for conservative ideas, um, and they would generally be governed more by the Constitution than by party politics, which is how it should be. Mm. So this, um, these justices, these nine justices, and using the their powers as a mechanism. For political influence or a medium for political influence is something that I suppose a combination of luck and strategic foresight through the Trump administration has sort of allowed for a more conservative justice board which is comprised of nine judges if if I understood mm -hmm. you correctly right and he's yes appointed how many now additional uh, in the slots um, that became available uh, he's a he's appointed three three um so that skewed the um, sort of political leanings of that board, I suppose. Yeah, it has, because now six of the nine justices are very conservative. Wow. Uh, in particular, Justice Clarence Thomas. Um, he's he's an extremely conservative um, Supreme Court justice. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that's really made the liberals and the Democrats in general very angry and in particular it's because a lot of them feel um that the um the the supreme court should be decided by the winner of the election as in the next appointment um but as um mitch mcconnell put which i mean i agree with him on if the shoe was on the other foot they wouldn't be saying that
Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. It seems but, like quite a novel yeah. tactic or even uh, a way of implementing um, political um, leanings. Hmm. So it's it's novel in the sense it's novel in the past twenty years. Um, prior to that, Clinton, but as a Reagan strategy and, of influence, you know, I suppose, or or a medium of influence, it's it's quite. Yes. I suppose the opportunity to do so do do as do as such comes few and far between because, as you say, they typically serve for life. Um, wow! Mm. So that's really just coincided with the Trump administration, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, to put it into perspective, the Supreme Court gives the final word on highly contentious laws. It gives a final word on disputes between the states and the feds. Um, and really, it, I mean, it hears fewer than 100 cases a year. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the fact of the matter is, with this new appointment of Barrett, um, we could be looking at whoever wins the election, irrespective of who wins, um, the 1973 decision to legalize abortion, that could be overruled. Obama's Affordable Care Act and the 20 million Americans that that ensures, that could also be overruled. So that's um, what I was going to ask you. you. Know, like, it sounds it, like the Supreme Court's powers are quite far-reaching and have the ability to almost veto, overrule anything that the Senate passes, or does it cross their desk and they typically, like the monarchy, kind of just put a tick in the box? Or in, in theory, do they have the power to veto it and block it? So in terms of how they how how they enact power and change it's less so with the senate mm. um that would generally be breaching the separation of powers that's heralded as a, a you know a benchmark of of american democracy um it would be more to do with certain states um bringing up hearings or grouping together to bring up hearings even individuals corporations um or other aspects of the federal government that would want to put forward a change. They will look into it and they will calibrate that in line with the US Constitution. So the Supreme Court's job above all is to interpret the US Constitution and decide and decipher basically how it matches up or conflicts with modern day changes. Um, so that's that's generally how they they do it and and for a lot that's scary because coney barrett is an originalist which means she interprets the u.s constitution as the authors intended not moving with the time right so ultra conservative like you said conservative in the true sense of the word um and that's to a lot of liberals that's very scary um because again depending on Depending on the the president, it, it's all it's almost irrelevant. Um, they can enact those changes. Wow! So, so the in fact, yeah. the the, the Supreme Court decided on who won the Bush Gore election. Do you remember when that was all contend con contested? Right, because the um, margin was so slim. The margin was slim. There were issues about the vote counting in Florida. Um, there was a lot of, even on the top levels of the federal government, I believe there was a lot of discrepancy in people's opinions on, on who the winner was. So I think, so that's when the, that's the court stepped in and it ruled that Bush was the winner. Right. Okay. And I suppose it's impossible to, um, 
completely disregard or um, take out of the equation any political leanings in that board of nine justices. Absolutely. I mean, there was a time when um, there w there was a time when whatever your political leaning in you, that you held in the Supreme Court, um, your job was to interpret the Constitution. It was not to um, enact your belief system. Um, and Clarence Thomas did a great job of doing that. He's a very um, conservative man. He's a, an African-American who grew up in, I believe, I think it was Georgia or um, South Carolina. Um, and he grew up obviously in a time of uh, terrible time of, of segregation um, where also there was very little help for the um, you know the working person in America in the 60s and he basically uh, I think he grew up in he, he, he grew up in a in an area where the only the only route to education was just spending time in his local library um, and he's a very much a exemplar of the American dream um, so, you know, African-American, uh, from a poor background who grew to be one of the most powerful men in America. Um, and he actually administered the oath of Coney Barrett two days ago. Wow. Okay. So I've definitely not seen the intricacies or ever appreciated the power of the Supreme Court. I've never really taken the time to understand it in any level of depth. So this is really insightful stuff. And it sounds like you're keeping on top of um, all of these changes because, like you say, with these new three chief justices, the impacts of this and repercussions of this will be felt for the decades to come. Absolutely. I mean, people forget how powerful the judiciary branch of the US government is. Um, that being said, uh, in Internationally, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court is research has shown that it's generally diminishing in its global influence. Um, and funnily enough, I think that the more conservative it gets, that that seems to be a catalyst. Um, court systems elsewhere in the world um, have developed more of a, a sort of front and center um, use for for sort of the yardstick. So one would be the European Court of Human Rights. There's other national Supreme Courts, there's aspects of the UN. Um, but in terms of internationally, the US influence of their, their court at least, not their economy, but their Supreme Court, um, has generally been waning. Um, and I think, I mean, my personal opinion that is that a lot of this is because of the, the US pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, so, which was under Trump's... Um, initiative other things you could take into account were perhaps a controversial travel ban um you know these kind of uh things that affect millions of people worldwide i think have cemented a gradual diminishing of the supreme courts the u.s supreme court's global influence right okay but, but, I think but in america it's domestically huge. yeah mm. Mm. it's all very big and leo how do you see the whole um I suppose phenomenal of populism playing out over the next election depending on who gets picked because those populism is a term that's been thrown around quite liberally over the past few years but from my understanding it's sort of a political approach that strives to appeal to ordinary people 
if I look at the definition of it, ordinary people who feel they've sort of feel disenfranchised or disregarded by the established elite groups. But you could argue that that's sort of the aim of any potential presidential um, candidate to appeal to that group of ordinary people, and I'm doing it for the people. Um, So I suppose it's not a particularly new phenomenon. Maybe it's just been labelled or given a new label as populism. Or has this actually been a term that's been around for a long time it's just risen to prominence more recently sort of the one percent 99 percent and the occupy wall street and all that stuff Hmm. yeah it's a it's a great question i think populism is such a sort of slippery and vague concept and it's led to centrist movements it's led to fascism it's led to communism um Generally, populism loosely is defined by um, a set of initiatives. I'm not even going to say ideas because populism isn't an ideology. Um, It's not based on, say, everyone being equal or it's not based on, you know, a low tax economy or or any particular um, static belief um, or ethos. It's really based on the general public rising up and becoming more powerful than the elites mm-hmm. um so is and it I think, almost sometimes a precursor to revolution or is that um it can be yeah it certainly can be you uh i think it more than often populist movements um we saw that in germany after the weimar republic i mean the the initial um sort of essence of Hitler's party being elected democratically um, to the Reichstag started as a populist movement and it was it was a movement that saw a confluence of socialist ideas in terms of how we handle healthcare and infrastructure with very socially conservative ideas about race and nationhood um, and these ideas at the time evoked people in the sort of bourgeois high ranks of society, but also craftspeople um, and blue collar workers and people who work 12 hours a day in factories, mm. um, you know, and, and I think in a sense that that defines populism. It's, it's something that unites across class and even across race a lot of the time, um, although not in the case of, of Germany, of course, but in other instances it has done. Um, and that's led to a figure or a government, and in this case we're faced with the Trump administration, that is completely different from previous conceptions of what constitutes conservatism or liberalism. And a lot of people will put, rightly so, Trump in the conservative camp, but his variant of um, politics, or doing business in politics, it isn't even conservative. It's, you know, there's aspects of it that are quite socialist there's aspects of it that are very anti-interventionist that would be tied more to the democratic party uh, traditionally um there's aspects of it that are highly conservative such as um you know aspects of his immigration policy and pulling out of the paris paris climate agreement so mm. it's such a mishmash of hard to define ideas that I guess we do put it in the populist camp because that's all, that's the only place it can go. <laughs> right, because it's the only category vague enough to allow for it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at... I mean, we'll go through a little detail. The Trump 
presidency over the past four years. We'll glaze over a few of the changes happened a bit later on the podcast, but there's they're just going they're zigzagging all around in terms of the uh, where their bearings would be on the political spectrum. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's all over the shop. Kind of, there's no one true north, and is the moment you think you've got them pinned down, then it's uh, something completely unexpected jumps out as a um, initiative or idea. I, I've I've noticed that with the candidates, obviously Trump is an extreme, but not necessarily far right candidate or someone or um, akin to a more extreme conservative ideal. Um, mm. And I suppose if you had Bernie, then that would be the antithesis of that. And mm. maybe that would be a more representative or two more representative candidates that would represent the two spheres of opinion and worldview that we're seeing in a dividing line and that dividing line being ever more prevalent globally um, in terms of left right. And, you know, we're seeing the consequences of that, one of them being, of course, the Trump election, Brexit, all of these uh, things. And I think even in Poland, there's more dynamics around the far right and the far left. And those two views and those parties being ever more divergent and therefore the population and the people who would follow each of those respective parties diverging ever more and probably leading to more clashes, which is what we're seeing now. And I just wonder whether that division of left and right and the ever more divisive world we're seeing is a division along generational lines. And mm. if it is along generational lines, like a bit like we saw with Brexit, um, what determines that division? Can we sort of pinpoint a year or a decade? Was it even something like an event such as the advent of the internet? I'm not sure. Mm. That's such a broad... Um, question and, and I think it's so hard to pin that down and mm. even measure that I'm I'm sure that the echo chamber effect and the mechanisms behind social media and all of its algorithms have um, created greater division than ever um, I think generation has, has a lot to play in it um, people's aspirations to, to travel and live and work abroad and, and make their impact globally and sort of see themselves as citizens of the world that's very much attributed to the younger generation um you know you've got the the older individuals um that perhaps more settled and their aspirations are more about democracy and sovereignty um and staying in one location geographically but actually having a lot more scope in terms of deciding their own future um, and having power over politicians, treating in politicians as employees. Um, that seems to be more of a, um, a, a facet of the older generation. Um, but coming back to what we were just saying, Brother Bear, I would love to hear your, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on where you might put Mr. Trump in terms of his um, his placement on the political spectrum. You're an articulate man, Andre. Where would you... Uh, where would you see him as fitting, if anywhere? I think you summed it up really well earlier on when you said he doesn't fit neatly in one box or the other as to either liberal or um, right-wing. Obviously, he sits within the Republican camp, so he is a right-wing person predominantly. Uh, but you're right, there are certain policies and acts brought in under his administration that 
been sort of atypical of maybe a Republican government, and you could almost call it as his own brand of Republicanism or Trumpism even, uh, because <laughs> it's so unique and um, not akin to anything we've really seen up until now. And I suppose no. it's it was some it was to be expected given what a nuanced candidate he was in the first place, someone completely outside of the establishment. And, you know, he was up against the establishment. And I suppose it gauged the mood of America at the time, which was very anti-establishment, which was everything that the Clintons represented and continue to represent. Mm. But as to where he sits on the political spectrum, I think I've probably not seen or been interested in even from a distance uh, you know, having our own troubles with Brexit, I've probably just not had the bandwidth to look at the acts and policies he's pushed through the Senate. But I know he's yeah. been an awful lot more effective than Obama in passing through what he's tried to because of the Republican majority. Um, yep. And I, I think at first where maybe the Republicans cringed uh, at the thought of Trump as their one and only uh, candidate and later president, they've sort of come to almost embrace him and realise that there is a strength to Trump as flawed and sort of abhorrent of a person as he is at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in terms of his, as you say, his effectiveness, mm. um, he's not messed about. And I think he's he's someone that's had a life in the private sector and as a, a very a visual TV TV-oriented celebrity. Um, why wouldn't he go out of his way to make the largest impact? Um, so you're absolutely right there, Andre. I think um, you know that the effectiveness is is the word there. I mean, you look at you look at his legacy. Not even considering the Supreme Court, you know, he's re completely revamped the immigration system. Um, he's made huge strides towards repealing Obamacare. Um, a lot of a lot of um, people don't actually recognize as well that he's removed a hell of a lot of troops from Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. Mm -hmm. um, that, that's something that's really not looked at. And he did say he was going to do that. He said he was going to bring people home from pointless wars. Um, he has maintained a presence over there, particularly surrounding um, the oil interests the U.S. has in the Middle East. But he's reduced a hell of a lot of troops. Um, and his tax cuts are also a major... Um, aspect of sort of the Trump bump that we've seen um, pre-pandemic. Uh, he slashed taxes for the rich and the poor, um, introduced tax credits for families with children, doubled it even, um, and brought in a standard deduction for individuals um, who did not itemize their tax returns. So really, I mean, I remember working over in America when this came in and people were like, wow, I've got an extra $200 a month. Um, so this is the significant, you know, that's someone's groceries, um, you know, the, the significant changes to people in all stratas of society. Um, and there's other, there's other measures as well. I mean, on the sort of macro level, the gross domestic product and, uh, employment levels hit, um, highest on a 17 year average. Yeah. Um, so we we're, we're seeing booms that hadn't been evident since the dot-com bubble. Mm. Um, now, of course, a lot of these glowing numbers did represent a continuation of the trend lines that began during the Obama administration, mm. um, which I think the majority of Americans do recognize or hopefully recognize. But so saying that, 
it was continued and it was boosted under Trump. Um, and that does count for something that cannot be completely dismissed. Yeah, I think it's right that you acknowledge sort of his successes um, and promises held um, where due. So that there, there are there are positives, no doubt. And I think it's interesting you mentioned the jobs as well and bringing as many of those manufacturing jobs back to the United States where they'd previously been outsourced over the last two decades. And I think that's a trend we're seeing globally, particularly sort of superimposed or maybe um, writ large with the America-China divorce in terms of the level of outsourcing Mm. going on there, being discouraged by the government as much as corporations would want to continue with that strategy um, because it's a profitable one. Um, albeit less profitable than it was back in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, but I, I think that's generally, unfortunately, goes against sort of the globalist uh, utopia maybe I saw where there was be ever more um, routes and channels of international cooperation on the technological fronts, on labour fronts, and just sort of a more of a footloose approach in every aspect of national economies where they have the ability and even incentive to be pushing um, employment elsewhere. And it would ultimately Mm. benefit everyone Um, because wherever you'd have outsourced labor, there would also be labor which you are highly specialized in domestically and therefore other countries or maybe that very country you outsource to would also seek out such specialized labor. So I think that, unfortunately, that dream or a step towards that world has taken a step back with sort of a bit of a more insular, nationalistic approach, both unilaterally between China and America. And you're kind of seeing that writ large with the 5G technology and sort of the distancing from Huawei under suspicions of um, security (laughs) issues. And uh, yeah, I think in the UK as well, we recently passed... In Parliament, the idea that Huawei wasn't going to be implemented in the UK from a 5G perspective, we're going to go with other vendors such as I think Ericsson um, or mm. Samsung. Yeah, yeah, that that sort of uh, skepticism and distancing from China, and um, that's I'd imagine that's been exacerbated by the pandemic from uh, a lot of countries. Um, there are certain prejudices there. Yeah. that have come from that. But you're definitely right that the Trump administration has led to a overwhelming step back from um, unrelenting internationalism. I mean, this is a guy that came in and said America first. And in many ways, he's stuck to his word on that. Um, I mean, as soon as he came in, really, he gave final approval to several long-delayed oil pipelines Um over vast waves of Alaskan wilderness, Alaskan wilderness um, to open up new oil and gas drilling projects. And I think that another thing which is very alarming to look at is his environmental record. I mean, yeah. he's gutted the EPA. Um, he has um, really permitted um, most of the U.S. coastline, aside from Florida, um, to be uh, explored for fossil fuel um, is it really accelerated that you've also got obviously the pulling out of the the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, which hark back to the um, the that Obama was right era. At the beginning, wasn't it? That was right. Yeah, that was right at the start. And all of these uh, taboos, you know, whether it's you know not building oil pipelines to 
not developing um, you know a sufficient environmental protection initiative to the international agreements um, whereby countries are trying to reduce their carbon emissions. These are all at odds with how America has been. So in a sense, Trump is in some ways the ultimate conservative on environmental fronts because he has pulled out of all those areas and he's put America first. Um, so he's very much stuck to that. But of course, on an international level, the consequences could be somewhat catastrophic. Yeah, and and I think just looking at it very holistically from a global perspective, it's disappointing that America's made that step backwards mm. um, because obviously they're a huge international player, arguably one of the biggest alongside China in terms of the direction the globe takes over the next few decades. And so I think mm. it's just a little bit of a shame because I think it's an inevitable and in fact desirable outcome to uh, strive for ever increasing international relationships on all on all levels and all stratas, whether that's societal, economic, and I think an increasing cross corporations is only a good thing. Um, obviously, mm, minimise the damage done by um, globalisation and brands, things like that. Obviously, we don't want to homogenise the world. I think that would be a disaster. But I think a level, a very healthy level of international cooperation and cross-pollination is critical to accelerated development. Um, mm. One of the things I would congratulate Trump on, and I don't know whether he sort of did this inadvertently, he didn't realise it was actually a positive thing, but it was the, just the increase, and quite marked increase in funding for NASA. Yeah, yeah, that's really absolutely cool. right. So the whole Launch America programme, and obviously the first commercial launch with SpaceX of two astronauts, and I think that was very inspiring. And I'm mm. so glad NASA is finally, after quite a few administrations, finally getting the funding it needs. Um, obviously still a way off what it was getting during the Kennedy era, during the space race. But getting back towards those levels, I think, would put America in very good stead. And I think globally we will stand to benefit as we look to the moon um, as a potentially shuttle base to further ventures and endeavours towards Mars. But also utilising the moon as a potential resource. Uh, for mining uh, all sorts of minerals, potentially something like helium-3, which is a potential renewable energy resource. But yeah, I think that's mm. quite um, a, lot, a bit of forward thinking there from Trump, uh, atypical of him, but um, good nonetheless. Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. It's sort of, I'm sure it's motivated by an America first uh, ideology, but it could have, you know, implications internationally that would be very positive. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned helium three. There's now they're now looking into water resources on the moon. Yes, um, that's just yesterday, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so, and the first, I think it's the is it the first uh, female astronaut will be landing on the moon? Yeah, um, I think they're shooting for twenty twenty four with NASA, the first female astronaut, right? Yeah. 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 So these um, these sort of progressive changes are um, are in the in the making, and I think Trump's you know approval uh, of the American Space Agency to the Space you know, Force further he's its funding. Um, he's also um, created the Space Force, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. What's the Space Force, brother? Bear, tell me, tell me. <laughs> I don't know, but he, I'm sure he's put together a Space Force. <laughs> and, uh, people will have a. Uh, 
quite a few laughs around the um, uniform for the Space Force because obviously <laughs> they will be in space, but it was like the traditional army, um, black, green, and dark green and brown camouflage. <laughs> <laughs> That's so Trump, Trumpy to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the army, it's the force, it's, it's got to have it. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think it think... looks like it's been uh, hijacked directly from Star Trek. <laughs> that sounds a lot like Trump. I'm sure. Pretty... Remember, remember when he was he was landing in helicopters playing? Um, was it Air Force One? The Air Force One theme. He was um, <laughs> he was doing that, and it's just like you could, you couldn't make it up. Like the level of sort of Hollywood. I know. Oh, the level of Hollywood. It. I mean, he's a showman at the heart of it. Really, it's not a surprise. He's come from show business. Um, and he loves it, doesn't he? He loves the limelight, and he plays up to it. And you even saw that when he was diagnosed with COVID, when he went on that parade while he was in hospital. (laughs) He was, like, waving from the car, wasn't he? Yeah. Like... Yeah, it was incredible. And then there was it was just pure cheese. But he came out when he when he arrived back at the White House after his visit in hospital. He went out onto the balcony and he put like a little YouTube video together of him waving and the American flag and the troops. And he was out there on the balcony <laughs> waving at the crowds in front of the White House. And he said he felt invincible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure he did after recovery. Um, yeah, I mean, um, it's it's just incredible. You sort of sit there with your head in your hands, thinking, it's "Tremendous." How, yeah how how did we even get to this point? What the hell is going on? Um, but yeah, I think uh, for me, looking back at the past four years, um, and I remember it so vividly when Trump claimed the victory. I, th- I think the past four years are saddest thing and the really unfortunate thing. And I think this isn't just social media. I think this is. This is a, a reaction to to the individual of Trump himself. It's just the level. I mean, the level of individual, the level of division. Sorry, the level of division in the United States has has, has just been absolutely unprecedented. Mm. Yeah, um, I think you're seeing that almost globally. Brexit's a symptom of that as well. I think yeah. you're seeing far right, far left dynamics play out all all across the world, right? You see it in Germany, you've seen it in France, Pegida, all of that stuff. Um, Mm. I I think democracy by no means is perfect, but, you know, it has been said that it's probably the best system we've got. Um, And indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for those other forms that we have tried from time to time. (laughs) Yeah. And you know in its current state it's been around for about a century yeah um and already it's under so much attack and skepticism and it's quite sad i mean you look at the eu and you look at the us and there's so little faith in these systems now yeah. i mean already yeah. they're looking into russian interference yeah into this election um and there's, I think, d- different law enforcement arms of federal law enforcement are looking into that, and you just think it's so sad, isn't it? And uh, you know, you've got the whole ca- Cambridge Analytica scandal as well, um, and I think that it's a shame that uh, you know this system that has been around for in its current state around a hundred years, mm. um, people are just so skeptical about it. I and, think, yeah. yeah, yeah, they are. They are incredibly skeptical, and I think. Almost if you really boil it down to the root cause, I theorize it might be to do with the 
brain's wetware incompatibility to keep up with the level of data being churned out by hardware silicon i literally think Mm. our brains aren't able to process enough data and are just getting almost jumbled in the static the sort of the 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 um deafening static of information and so Mm. all of this polarization extremism tribalism is what we fall back on as default as humans and as a reaction a coping mechanism even to the sort of the incalculable and overwhelming complex reality of Mm. sort of social dynamics and the full nuanced spectrum of opinions that arises from those social dynamics and i think we're unable Mm. to compute all of that and from that we fall back on simpler ideals or um simple tribalism whether Mm. you're in one camp or the other and you're you're not with us and you're against us and this is the sort of sickening reality we find ourselves in a little bit now Mm. that's a great point that's a really great point brotherly bear i think it's uh the amount of data the volume um and the level of distortion drives us back to what we know and what we love that nostalgia that sort of tribal nostalgia yeah um you know it crashes your wet wet it crashes your brain and you just fall back on what's really you fall back on instinct Mm, that's right yeah you fall back on your instinct and what you know um and the groups that you grew up with um and you know you have vivid imagery of your hometown and what people believe back there and i think that's what a lot of people fall back on in these times and that's pushing sadly that's pushing people even further apart yeah definitely and i think it's very there's a lot of duality there's no third party there's no lib dems anymore <laughs> realized notice that it's just mm. it's just democrats republicans it's just conservative it's just labor it's really we're only talking about those two how weird is it that the lib yeah. dems and the greens have suddenly become a distant memory yeah, I, I feel like there was a time not so long ago where politics was far less binary. Yeah. Um, and far less tribal. Um, you know, and you you'd have people, you know, set, you wouldn't you wouldn't encounter people demanding, are you pro gun or anti gun, or are you pro immigration or anti immigration? You know, things were. I feel like not so long ago, maybe five or six years ago, things were quite a bit more nuanced, and there was more. Um, accommodations for you know a more uh, sort of a more a more diverse uh, and nuanced conversation about each issue yeah and nuance was something to be celebrated and enjoyed and i suppose the full spectrum of debate allowed for that but now you've got this binary duality which it really just hmm. is at headlogs right and it just generates unproductive often nonsensical not i wouldn't even call it debate anymore just sort of pure reaction and emotion and when you bake emotion into it then yeah there's a lot of irrationality that arises out of that yeah a hell of a lot of irrational i think that's a great word uh, to describe it irrationality um because wherever you are on the on the fence left right center even whatever you believe in if if you see your views as the ultimate morality and will never ever allow any kind of um, other opinion or, or or nuance to interfere with that belief system, 
you can only the destination you'll arrive at can only be extremism absolutely and the moment you put yourself firmly in one camp or the other and refuse to budge or refuse to moderate your ideas depending on what you hear and what you listen to or even just people just close their ears to the idea of debate because i don't Mm. know why but maybe they fear that their belief systems will collapse under the rigor of a debate but that's what debate's for and that's what moderation's for and that's what moderates social behavior you go out and murder someone, then you go to court and go to jail for a very long time, and that's only right because that's what moderates action. But there's nothing to moderate ideas. No, no, that's right. There's nothing to moderate ideas and debate uh, and nuance um, and and self awareness of one's one's own nuance in debate is all part of stress testing. Um, stress testing the, the basically the robustness of of your ideas. Um, how much are they tied to facts? How much are they tied to statistics? How much are they tied to, you know, memories um, or the way you were raised or your friendship group or the people you work with? You know, these are all the data points that need to be looked into and considered when you're really putting an idea or, or viewpoint forward. Yeah, and I wonder whether it starts with introspection, like a forthright, honest introspection, whereby you're kind of, it's 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 a lot easier said than done and it takes a lot of practice and i struggle with it and you struggle with it as perfect as you are bro bear um you know it's Thank it, you. it's it's an art you never stop working on is no. sort of forthright confrontation with you thy own beliefs is um an ongoing lifelong process and it mm. you know it has to be done on a daily basis well subconsciously most of the time but it is done and uh, but it is done but but i think at first it needs to be a conscious action before becoming a subconscious thing but some people never get there or never even want to entertain the idea of consciously internally testing their own ideas before then sort of spouting anything and then once they do spout something they're unwilling to test the strength and robustness of those ideas against someone else's which i think is a real shame because i thought that was sort of the cornerstone of democracy and sort of civil society yeah yeah, I feel like that's that should be the goal in in people in robust civic duties um, and just having a good personal uh, constitution. Just being an example of uh, being a product of good governance would be, in my eyes, someone who is able to question their own beliefs and divorce themselves temporarily from their own ego, yeah. um, and not to just affirm and reaffirm and, and self-validate um, their viewpoints, however left or right-wing they are. Um, and I think uh, that's, I think that's the, the side of Donald Trump's presidencies that's been the most, presidency that's been the most ugly, is that I think Trump has actually made the left more extreme um, and more nonsensical. And I think that in turn, you sort of, uh, you know, you're talk- talking in sort of terms of cause and effect. The insanity of certain aspects of left-wing movements are pushing more good, honest, working people towards the sort of Trump voting inclination. Yeah. And and I think as much as people on the left would hate to hear that or would deny that, I really believe that in essence you know that's that's also what's feeding into um trump's power and and, and prowess as a, a 2020 modern politician 
Yeah, definitely. A big part of that was obviously the whole cancel culture, which pervades until today. Um, you know, that's an ongoing problem where people feel offended for one reason or another, typically um, sort of unjustified in terms of the repercussions of things like people losing their jobs, you know, over a stupid tweet. It's, mm. um, and more often than not, it's it's obviously not a justified action for someone to lose their employment because of a, a tweet that doesn't quite jive with someone's political leanings. Mm. Um, yeah. So apart yeah, from the cancel culture, I think you've also just had uh, the level of some some college campuses and university campuses predominated by a political political leaning and i don't think university campuses should be leaning politically one way or the other i think they should be melting pots of debate and not necessarily identify as either left or right Hmm. oh yeah i mean academia uh college campuses and and being an academic should all be about self-exploration um and really trying to understand this thing we call society better and where it works and where it doesn't work it shouldn't be about you know calling putting yourself in a particular camp i mean you know as soon as you join the uh, the ranks of uh, the second year university crowd you know you identify as perhaps a marxist historian or a conservative geographer well here's another idea what about if you come in 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 the best way you possibly can as a neutral party and take different stances on different issues and and actually just treat it as sort of a ride um, a roller coaster of of different thoughts and debates and then maybe at the end you can compile a a belief system um, that you're certain about but don't borrow in to those ideas with with a built-in bias because the results are always going to be the same absolutely yeah and it goes back to sort of forthright checking of hypotheses and ideas and being able to adjust them in light of new evidence almost like the Mm. scientific method right doing it that way because you look at examples globally and you could look let's just go back to the left right thing The, the the chances of the right being completely right or the left being completely right is just a flawed idea to start with because neither mm. neither will, neither has all the answers. The truth is the li- the truth lies somewhere in between them. Mm. Whether it's more to the left or to the right, we can argue for millions of years. But it it, it the, the truth is that it lies somewhere between them. It there is no way that the left has all the answers, and it's no, no. way that the right has all the answers. So you look at somewhere like China, where they've sort of married sort of potentially the extremes of one and the other and it's actually an incredibly successful country if you look at it look it's got almost this element of dictatorship in Xi Jinping Uh, you've also got Mm. the element of communism obviously in sort of state socialism or almost a bit of a bastardized version of Marxism as all socialism seems to be when implemented Um, Mm. and then you've got sort of rampant free market um, capitalism all in there yeah. and it seems to work incredibly well mm. all together because you've kind of got enough power from the government to push and deregulate and reduce red tape where possible to allow the free markets to operate but mm. also regulate the so the society so it's not too um disruptive when it comes to the ruling party and all of that so 
you know, you can argue for the, the human right records and all of that, and all of that's awful. But from a perspective, sort of holistically, and maybe just looking at it economically for a second, it's a system where the cogs all kind of mesh quite nicely. Yes, yeah, that's um, that's a very good point, brother Bear. You know, you've you've got sort of a pick and mix approach to markets and freedoms um, and governance. And yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of China's economic might and its resilience in recessions and also in certain aspects of, of how its middle class has been completely widened. Well, lifted out um, of poverty, the amount of the millions have lifted out of poverty in China over the last th th four decades. It's incredible. Mm. There's, there's other parallels you can draw in um, sort of modern Germany as well from the 80s, um, sort of post-Berlin post Wall coming down the phenomenon of auto liberalism and the auto liberalist um, political system is and they have it to this day in Germany it basically sees a board level confidence confluence sorry of unions so labor unions um, corporations um, and the government um, coming together to sort of diplomatically achieve goals that are in line with working class interests um, but also f relatively free markets um, and also social programs. And some people will say, well, that's impossible. You need to have free markets and low minimum wages and a low tax economy. Others will say, no, no, that's crazy. You know, you need to have, you know, a full socialist, fully nationalized, collectivized outcome. But auto liberalism has, has very much um, formed the, a confluence of, of both of those disparate ideas. And it's pulled it off very successfully in the case of modern Germany. Yeah, absolutely. Just another example of where nuance is actually the way forward. And of course it is. Like, you're never going to have all of the answers in the right-wing basket equally on the left. So, no. If I think we all know the answer is that it's somewhere in between the two. And, you know, they, maybe there's also a point to be, a leaf to be taken, dare I say, from the dictator's book and also a leaf to be taken from the Marxist manifesto. Like, why not? Mm. Mm. because there, there, there is some value to be derived from all of these systems and I think a confluence and a right concoction of all three can lead to a productive society obviously you're never going to have a perfect society Not no such thing exists only in theory mm. um, but yeah you're going to end up with a far better well-rounded society than you yes. would otherwise That's. I think that's a great way of putting it well-rounded Um and this this is great because we're talking about electability here and we're talking about um, sort of a, um, a rep how how representative governments and institutions are of the people they represent, you know, in terms of the confluence of different views and ideas. And this brings me to the, the point of the electoral college. And I really wanted to discuss that mm. with you, Brother Bear, um, particularly in light of this, this election in a week's time. So... I'm a do true you... layman here, so do help me out. <laughs> well, that's fine. Um, I think most people are laymans with the Electoral College. It seems to be structured so that no one can bloody understand it. But, <laughs> um, in essence, what it is, is... Uh, it consists, sorry, it consists of 538 electors, um, and you need an absolute majority of elector of 270 or more to win. So back in 2016, Trump got 306, Hillary got 232. But Hillary got 2.8 million more votes than Trump. Mm -hmm. 
So how do we work that one out? <laughs> right. <laughs> that yeah, I think this is one of the big controversies, wasn't it? Because although on paper, obviously the people had more people had voted for Hillary, the electoral college had swayed it in Trump's favor, right? Yeah. So how close was yeah. it? How many more or less uh, electoral college votes would Trump need for Hillary to get elected? Well, uh, Hillary had 232. Mm. And she would have need 270 to win. Um, Trump had 306. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it was quite a big difference, which is, which put some glaring holes in the fact that Hillary won the popular vote by such a huge margin. Um, and that's what was so worrying about it. And that's what people, are, that's why the polling system in America is useless. Because if you're asking it person for person, it actually doesn't really indicate anything. Because the, the electoral college runs on a first past the post winner takes all system. So let's take a state like California which has 50, because of its huge population, it has 55 electoral votes um, out of the 538 in total. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say, what's half of 55 million? It would be, was it 27 and a half million? 27 and a half, yeah. So let's say one more person than 27 and a half million voted Democrat over Republican then all of the 55 votes in California would go to Democrat. Oh, wow. So Gosh. it's not, yeah. So it's winner takes all. Um, so they take what the whole, they take the state's population or votes, yeah, sorry. So, so the number of electoral votes reflects the population. So Montana has three electoral votes. Mm -hmm. California has 55. Texas, I think, has something like 48. I may be wrong, but so around that number. So it's just proportional to the population of a given state? Correct. And what's the what's the ratio? I don't know what the formula they use is or how they It'll tweak it. It'll be like it, but one, one, two million or something like that, right? Or whatever, whatever the ratio is. Poss possibly, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'm not sure. Okay. I don't think it's that precise because... Montana, Wyoming, and I think South Dakota all have just three. Um, their populations vary quite a bit. So it's quite confusing. But mm -hmm. um, the, th the fact of the matter is Trump won the battleground states on a very, very slim margin. So, And these are going to be the states that we'll need to be watching for next Tuesday. Michigan's, Pennsylvania's, Florida's a huge one because Florida has 29 electoral votes. Yeah. Um, so if if say Trump wins that by one person's vote those 29 will be given to Trump um so those are the states to watch Nevada's another one Wisconsin I may have already said that but these are the states to to keep an eye out on um but the idea behind the electoral college is really was really just to prevent the cities from strangling um, the rural areas and the and the smaller states because you've got the sort of reverse issue in Canada where I am where elections are really decided just by how people vote in Toronto and Montreal mm -hmm. um, whereas all of Western Canada where all the farming and the agriculture and the, the forestry and the oil and gases counts for nothing diddly squat um, just because there's less people there so 
I can I can see it from the side of the Electoral College. Another good argument is that if you were to take California out, just the state of California from the 2016 election, I think Trump would have won by something like 10 or 15 million votes. So it's unfair for a state just because of its population to dictate the outcome. Um, so it's a very divisive issue, Brother Bear. What, what do you think? Mm, yeah, I can see how you can have a lot of controversy around this system. Um, mm. I think in the UK, I think, look, I think any system you implement, there will inevitably be shortcomings and limitations to it. Because mm. a rule by definition, if you implement it, has an opportunity cost. So there's something you're foregoing by taking one rule or the other, and that's um, unavoidable. Hmm. So I know I'm looking at it very holistically, and I'm not sort of addressing the specific examples you just mentioned. But yeah, hmm. it does seem a bit weird how one state such as California could swing it so drastically one way or the other. But hmm. I suppose on the other hand, it does make sense because it's proportional representation in that the given population of a given state would be represented in equal weighting by the number of votes. So would you just say California was 55, for example, yeah? Yeah. Which is, yeah. relative to the other states, extremely high, if not the highest. So mm. I'm not sure I, I have enough knowledge on the system itself to have a strong opinion one way or the other. All I'm saying is sort of just giving a bit of generic insight there, and I hope you all enjoyed that. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, to be honest. Um it's and I, I don't even know enough about it myself to to cast judgment on which system would be better. Um, all I know is it's it's hugely controversial for someone to get almost three million votes more and lose the election by a landslide. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or there's equally a lot of criticism thrown at the uh, British um, system of voting. First past the post. Is that right? Yes. That's past the post. Good past post. <laughs> Pat. No. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of criticism, isn't there, to the uh, um, the, the the wastage of votes, as some people would say, um, in uh, in a non PR system. Post past the post. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. What what we can conclude from all this is that. Um, in light of this particular election, um, it should definitely be a priority for people to keep an eye on what Florida's doing, what um, Texas is doing as well. Um, these are states with big electoral votes, vote numbers. Um, they have, in the recent polls, been reflected to be a bit on the fence. So these are the states that will decide who the next president is. Can't wait, Brother Bear. Are you going to be staying up all night watching the results in the states come in live? Live. live well, I don't box. know. <laughs> live from the Rocky Mountains. <laughs> I don't think I have the bandwidth to stay up all night. Um, I think. Come the... on. <laughs> Power. No, I think I think that the um, the last four years has exhausted me so much that. I would much prefer a good night's sleep, but I'll definitely be watching it till about midnight where the, uh, I suppose, the indicators will be there yep. on uh, on who's who's the victor. Um, final concluding thoughts before we call it, call it uh, on this podcast, Brother Bear. Do you have um, any insight on who you think the victor will be? 
Well, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, um, <laughs> I would put it on Biden. Joe's my man. Go for it, Joe. I think on a personal note, I think I'd prefer to see Joe in the White House for all his shortcomings. Um, mm, I just mm. think another four years of Trump maybe wouldn't be the best thing, particularly from a climate standpoint. And uh, really, that's it. I think I agree with you there. Here we are, brother bear. We're echo chain. We're in an echo chamber together. Um, <laughs> but I think, uh, yeah, I think for me, climate is a big issue, um, and immigration as well. I I don't like to see people uh, separated from their families, um, and I think that above all, it's just the level of division that. Trump has brought with him and maybe that existed already or was it was in the making but I think that he's such a polarizing person and it's it's gone to the point where it's just exhausting um you know he tweets something and this company or this aspect of the economy tanks or goes up and I think Biden for all his shortcomings and for all um his potential cognitive decline mm. we need someone that's I think America needs someone that's a bit more centrist. And um, Agreed. you know me, Brother Bear. I'm a, I love America. I love the American people. And my first years being there were under the Obama administration. And I think in the same way as under the Reagan administration, America just felt united and it felt free. Um, and I kind of think that's come to uh, a bit of a close with, with Trump, with, with everyone being at each other's throats. Yep, agreed. I, that's certainly the sense I get across the pond. And um, it's everything you're telling me and Damien's telling me. So let's get a change of guard and um, come a week's time, let's see democracy manifest. <laughs> this is democracy manifest. Go Biden. <laughs> Pow! Pow! We'll call it there, brotherly bear. Till next time, um, have a healthy and safe week ahead. Thank you. You too. Healthy and safe. Goodbye. Pa-pow! Ka